we serve the lion and the lamb this morning. Amen. Hallelujah, Jesus.
nothing without you, Jesus. You are the great I am this morning. You are who was and is and is to come. You are the king that is above all kings. You are the king of glory. And this morning, God, I count it an honor and a privilege to even speak your name. Can we speak the name of Jesus? Can we lift our voice and just speak the name of Jesus? Where all hell trembles at the name of Jesus. Demons must flee at the name of Jesus. There is healing in the name of Jesus. There's salvation in the name of Jesus.
about the Holy Spirit being welcome in this place. That that's more than an anthem. It's got to be a reality of our expression. And one of the times where we really, really need the Holy Spirit to be welcome is when we participate in communion. The only thing that keeps communion from being an empty ritual is the presence, the manifest presence of God. And we've been going through Hebrews understanding just how important the shed blood of Jesus Christ is. In the understanding of the church, in an understanding of end time events, in an understanding of salvation, we have to understand just how important his broken body and shed blood is. And just what a miracle it was that God himself would put on human clothes, become a human, live among us, let his body be broken, 
and his blood spilt to cover the mercy seat in heaven so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Oh, what a Savior. Yes, he is. I said, oh, what a Savior. Yes, he is. Isn't he wonderful? He is wonderful, not just for what he does for me, but what he's done for all time. Oh, what a Savior. Hold up the wafer, would you, and give thanks to Jesus for his body broken for you. Jesus, we're so thankful that you are willing to become man, that you're willing to live among us, that you're willing to let your body be broken so that we could be whole and restored and complete. We remember and give thanks for your sacrifice in your name. Let's partake of the wafer together. And Lord, now as we lift the cup, <laughs> we remember your blood shed, ordained before this world was ever formed and continues in its power and vicarious nature to this day and beyond. We thank you for the power of your blood that sets captives free, that forgives sin, that liberates us from bondage, that puts us in a whole new way of life. The, the blood that causes demons to tremble, the blood that causes bondages to break, the blood that allows the anointing to fall on this house. We're thankful for your blood this morning, and we rejoice in that in your name, in Jesus' name. Let's partake of the cup together.
you love Jesus, let me hear your hands this morning. How many of you are glad that your salvation isn't based on your performance? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. I'm so glad that it depends on him and not on me. And the book of Hebrews is all about that. I want to take just a minute to give a little bit of um, uh, instruction, maybe warning over some of the changes we're going to make trying to get ready for Easter. And we need to make more room. This morning, we're pretty safely spread out, but we want to try to accommodate as many people as we can. And we are a mixed multitude. Everything from why are we doing any distancing to why aren't we doing more? And I get that. And I know full well, I'm not going to make everybody happy. So just be happy. So beginning next week, we're going to make this change in our seating. These four center sections, one, two, three, and four, will be open for voluntary social distancing. What does that mean? We're going to open the closed rows so that you can sit together with family groups and getting ready for Easter or people that you regularly um, interact with. So people that are in your home that you spend time with and you can put family groups together in these four sections. The outside sections, one, two, and actually there's um, one and then another section, three over here actually. And the balcony will remain with closed rows and um, intentional social distancing so that you can sit over there and we could have room here in the middle. And then we are staffing BSC. And so the seating in BSC will be different than it's been with single chairs where family groups or with kids can sit up there. We'll be staffed with a uh, pastor who will welcome you and it'll be video streamed up to BSC so that if you can't find seating, you can sit up there, all right? So one, two, three, and four in the middle will be voluntary social distancing. We're not just opening it, but so you can sit together with family groups and friends that you normally interact with. The outside wings will stay distanced. The balcony will stay distanced. And we'll have additional seating, social distance, and BSC. How many, does that make sense to you? You don't have to agree, but you understand it. Hold up your hand if you understand it. All right, those are the steps we'll be taking to move um, forward and try to create some more space on Easter. And I will tell you, one of the reasons we're doing that is last week when I asked how many of you would be willing to come to an 8 o'clock service, there were almost none of you. So you're, you're imposing this change, just so you know. <laughs> All right, Zach Lowe's going to come, and he's going to quote to us this morning from Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verses 24 to 28. Open your Bible, uh, turn your digital device there, and follow along as Zach brings the scripture to us this morning. Go ahead, Zach. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary that was made by human hands that was only a copy of the true one, but he entered heaven itself to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, but just as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have suffered many times since the creation of the world. But he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and then after that... Uh, to face judgment. Uh, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Great job. That was a longer one. Thank you, Zach. Great job. Thank you. 
Chapter 8, the theme changes slightly from the better Savior that we understood in the first seven chapters to a better covenant in 8, 9, and 10. And last week, we talked about the importance of keeping the main thing the main thing. The theme was the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing we're saying is this. It's still all about Christ. But clarity is brought to us about the covenant and why it is a better covenant. We have a superior high priest and a superior covenant. In chapter 9, this new covenant is better for one primary reason. It's once and for all. Once and for all. And chapter 9 will go into detail to help us understand that and why that matters. Now, I love scripture, and I love the places that make me chuckle, and this one makes me chuckle again. So in the first part of chapter 9, there's this lengthy description of the earthly tabernacle, and we're just going to read through it so that you can see it and what's being described. Now, the first covenant had regulations to worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in the first room where were the... Uh, lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the whole, most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and a gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, the overshadowing of the atonement cover. And so if you were Jewish, you would see that all in your mind. It'd all be portrayed out for you. And hopefully as we read it, you tried to picture some of that or were confused enough to say, I don't understand it. Because after that explanation, the writer of Hebrews says, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. (laughs) Hey, I want to show you this, but we don't have time to stop. Let's keep moving here. Because everything else flows out of that. And uh, a great study could be done in and of itself on just the tabernacle and the typology of the tabernacle and everything represented in the tabernacle. Phenomenal study. But the author is saying, I want you to see it, but that's really not our purpose this morning or in this writing, in this epistle. It's not our purpose to fully explain what was, but want you to see what was so that you can now begin to understand what is and why what is is superior to what was. And so the focus is on what is. We have a better sacrifice and a better covenant. And there are three things I think that jump out in this chapter that show us why this covenant based on a better savior matters. And the first is simply this, Jesus cleanses our conscience. Jesus cleanses our conscience. How many of you have a conscience? The rest of you are psychopaths. Let me try. (laughs) Or at least sociopaths, I don't know which, have no ability to show remorse. I'm going to try that again. That was not rhetorical. I want you to own it. How many of you have a conscience? How many of you wish that person sitting beside you's conscience worked a little better? No, don't raise your hand. We have a conscience. And there's something about that. Here's what I believe about the conscience, that it is created in us. I get that. And it can be shaped and wired and molded by our experience, but it was intended by God 
to be that inner witness of what is right and what is wrong and a call to a higher source, that God-shaped void. Your conscience is there to tell you that you aren't big enough, strong enough, smart enough, gifted enough to make it through this world without making it feel bad. How many of you have ever felt bad because of your conscience? Again, I'm calling for the law if nobody raises your hand. I'm, I'll be terrified. We all have that sense. We all have that. Uh, and, and the ex- explanation of that from the old covenant is really, really important here. It shows us this, that external conduct and external worship will not resolve the issues of your conscience. So if I were to put it into our context, singing this morning won't cleanse your conscience. Tithing won't completely cleanse your conscience. It'll help because you won't feel guilty about your money, but you'll feel guilty about other things. Attending church won't cleanse your conscience. Those are expressions of a clean conscience, and Old Testament performance can't clean the conscience. Now look, beginning in verse 6, the description goes on, that everything had been arranged like this. A priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on the ministry. But what happens when he goes in to the Holy of Holies? What was that? It was the place where the mercy seat was, and without covering, you're accountable to the law of God that was inside that Ark of the Covenant. So once a year, the high priest would enter in and put blood on the mercy seat. And when he went in, he did it first for himself. He didn't go in thinking, I'm representing the people I've done so well. It's really, if this doesn't work, I'm a dead man. And it gave, it gave um, an intellectual and a moral covering that you understood God forgave, but it didn't change anything on the inside of the heart. How many of you ever apologized to somebody? This is really the side right now this morning. You're behaving, I don't apologize to nobody about nothing. How many have ever apologized? Oh, that's better. And you knew that when you apologized, it didn't fix it. And apologizing doesn't necessarily by itself make you feel better. Reconciliation will make you feel better, but apologizing doesn't assuage the guilt that you feel in your conscience until there's a reconciliation that takes place. I've said to, we said to our kids all the time, they were growing up over and over again. When they'd be sorry, I'd say, I'm glad you're sorry, but I'll believe you're sorry when there's a change in behavior. And sometimes we can't do that. How many of you found yourself making the same mistake over and over again? Saying the same thing over and over again. And I don't want to get into this very deep. I, I really don't. But I will guarantee you there's a basketball coach in the Midwest who wishes he'd never heard the word plantation. How many know what I'm talking about? Been following the news? How many don't know what I'm talking about? 
Okay, well, let's just leave it there. <laughs> There's certain things that come out of your mouth. And in this case, I'll use it, talking to his team, he talked about the importance of staying together as a team, and he used this phrase, you need to stay on the plantation. How many understand that was a dumb thing to say? How many think he wishes he could suck that back in? How many think his conscience feels bad? I mean, he's apologized all over the place. But sometimes the damage that's done can't be assuaged by simple human effort. There's something else that needs to happen. And all of the sacrifices that we make or the apologies we offer, we need something bigger than that. And so every year when the blood of bulls and goats was, was offered for their sins, they were saying we're sorry will you forgive us but nothing changed on the inside if you're married and you apologize to your spouse you're hopeful that will change the dynamic and if it doesn't you can't continue to stay in a place of tension and friction these sacrifices could offer ceremonial cleansing, which was needful, but going through the motions brought no real life change. And so I'm calling you not as Jews, but as evangelical Pentecostals, as sons of God people, going through the motions won't change you. To our teens and young adults, just going through the motions won't change you. Memorizing the scripture won't change you unless you get it on the inside of you. Something more than external conduct has to happen or you will not be any different than you were when you started. Someone who goes into the baptistry, a dry sinner will come out a wet sinner. There won't be any different. A pagan who takes communion will be a pagan after communion. What I'm saying to you is the externals don't change us. And unfortunately, if we're really honest in Christian circles, we're comfortable with people who exchange or people who change the externals, whether they have a life change or not. Are you hearing me now? Well, if they just quit drinking, well, they're still going to hell. If they just quit and you fill in the blank, we'd be more comfortable, but the external changes won't address the internal need and all of the religious uh, liturgies in the world won't change the internal need. So beginning in verse 11, after presenting the problem in the first 10 verses, they're only a matter of, of food and drink and ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest, of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. And so again, I'm going to make the application. We talk about the Jewish nation here that they needed to understand that it wasn't about the temple. It wasn't about the tabernacle. It wasn't about the sacrifices. It wasn't about the offerings. Those were inferior and represented a heavenly reality. And when we raise our hands, it's not about that. It's 
It's not about singing. It's not about attending church. It's not about going through the forms. When we sing, what should we be doing? Understanding there is a heavenly reality that we need to enter into. When we study his word, there's a supernatural reality that we need to own. There's something we step into because this is temporal. But worship is eternal. We've got to step. Are you hearing me this morning? We have to step over on the other side. Listen, if Christians understood as a whole, I'm not talking about Brian, I'm talking about other people, <laughs> that church start times aren't sacred, that rooms aren't sacred. Let me do it this way. I, I grew up with this room was a holy, holy place. You couldn't have fun in here. You couldn't really smile if you laughed in the wrong time. Couldn't run. You couldn't draw. You couldn't do anything. It was miserable for kids. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, don't get mad at me. But we called this the sanctuary. It's not. Sorry, it's not. You are. You are. And if you live like the devil out there, you're still like the devil in here. This room doesn't change you any more than walking into a garage turns you into a car. Hello? How many of you heard what I'm saying? We fight over temporal realities over things that really don't matter because they are temporary and temporal. And if we, if we could lay that aside and really understand, I've been, it's captured me on Wednesday night that Jesus, fresh and new, that Jesus walks among the lampstands, which are his church, that he is here this morning. Are you hearing me? He is in this room. He's walking up and down the aisles and between the chairs and his spirit is hovering over this place, just waiting for us to leave the temporal and move into the supernatural and see what he might do. This is temporary. It's not lasting. It's going to change. So I'm reading all this stuff now about what will the church look like on the other side of COVID. I don't know when the other side of COVID is going to come. There'll be another COVID. There'll be another problem, another issue. And that churches are going to drop by 20% attendance and all of that. Let me tell you how the church is going to change. The true church won't change at all. Because the true church isn't where we gather, it's who gathers. And if anything has happened, it should change you from the inside out, making you stronger than you were before, ready for more victories and more battles to be won because we are the church of the living God. Where we gather matters. And the church of the living God should gather together, absolutely. And places set aside for that should reflect that, absolutely. And I'm all about the ornamentations that speak of our faith. I believe in all of those things. But don't ever mistake the building with the place that God dwells because he doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. He dwells in earthly tabernacles of the heart. So if he's here, it's because he came in with you. It's a focus that the writer of Hebrews is driving at. Now, are you ready? You good? 
when Jesus <laughs> entered the Holy of Holies, like the priest entered once a year. When did he do that? Well, let me just, it's, it's hard to really articulate this and prove it. I'm just going to tell you what I believe. And if I believe it, I believe it's right. <laughs> but did you, do you remember in scripture when Jesus appeared to Mary in the garden and he said, don't touch me? I'm starting to feel it. Don't touch me because I've not ascended yet to your father and my father. But then later, when he sees Thomas, he says, touch me. Touch me. What happened? This is what I believe happened when he died on the cross. He descended into hell. He appeared on the earth. The graves were open. Resurrected saints were seen walking the streets of Jerusalem. And he was on his way to the throne room of God. And he had a sacrifice that he was going to give there. Don't touch me. I've not been there yet. But there's evidence of the resurrection. And when he preached to the captives, led captivity captive, he had a whole host out of a place called paradise that was going into the presence of the Father. And he's leading the charge. And he walks into the throne room of God. And he walks into the holy, holy of holies in heaven. And there he puts not the blood of a bull, not the blood of a goat, not the blood of animals, but the perfect sin blood of the spotless Lamb of God is on the mercy seat once and for all. His blood was poured there because that's what all of it was about. That's what all of it was about. Getting ready for that day that he would come. It's offered through the Holy Spirit for our cleansing. Now watch this. You ready? I hope you're hearing this this morning. Um, this is good stuff. Not because I'm preaching it. I may be slaughtering it, but just read the scripture and you'll be dancing around your house this afternoon. Now think about this. How many are ready? You ready? Come on. Let's get ready. Somebody needs to run here in a minute. <laughs> if the blood... I can't hardly stand it, what I'm about to say next. If the blood of bulls and goats, think a blood of, have you been around animals? I've heard of people that keep pigs in their house. You know, you do whatever you want, but I'm not putting a cow in my house. Certainly not a bull or a goat. They smell, they're not perfect. They're animals. And I, 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 okay, PETA people, I love animals. <laughs> but if the blood, think about this, of a bull, if the blood of a goat could make you ceremonially clean, is anybody hearing me now? If the blood of an animal, God says, makes you ceremonial clean, what do you think happened? 
when the blood of the Son of God was poured on that mercy seat, how much more cleansed to the core will we be? Because the ceremonial cleansing spoke to an eternal cleansing that was manifested by the Son of God. And it's not a symbol, it's a reality, it's not a ceremony, it's a conversion, it's a whole new relationship that what once just made us clean on the outside makes us clean all the way through on the inside by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. For our cleansing. So here's the good news. All of that to get to verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse, and I love this, cleanse our conscience, consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, it's worth your time to read. And my favorite picture is when Pilgrim is carrying that heavy pack from the city of death, the city of doom, the city of judgment. He's carrying that pack. And he comes to the cross. Do you remember that picture? And the, and the load that he can't carry, his guilty conscience, it just rolls off of him at the foot of the cross. It's an old song we used to sing, I remember when my burdens rolled away. The sins I had carried night and day. And it talks about leaving. I remember, I remember. Do you remember? Have you had a time where you felt the load of your guilt? You felt the load of your sin? Your conscience was smitten? You felt like the lowest of lows? And then you got down before Jesus Christ and he does a miracle that only he can do? What you can't do by apologizing? What you can't do by penance? What you can't do by sacrifice? By a word from God, you are forgiven and you are cleansed and my birth and rolled away that I'd carry day and night because he has the ability to do what nothing else can do and that's cleanse our conscience. That's why it's a better covenant because the old covenant was external performance. The internal covenant is cleansing of the conscience. Oh, what joy. What joy. And again, I say this a lot, but I still, help, I still hear people say it. I don't think he can forgive me. <laughs> what an arrogant thing to say. You don't know how bad I've been. There's only one way that you can't be forgiven. And that's if your sin is bigger than his sacrifice. And you ain't that important. You're not that big. 
that the Son of God, who became one of us, died on the cross, put his blood on the heavenly mercy seat, offers it freely to all. You are not so big that your your sin is bigger than his sacrifice. He cleanses. That's why he came. You're a spit in the ocean compared to the grace of God. The worst that you've done is a splinter in your finger compared to to the majesty of his provision because he cleanses the conscience. Second, he's the consummation of the covenant. Now, I was thinking about this, and I don't, I don't have all of the answers to this. Why did it have to be a blood covenant? I mean, God could have wrote the rules any way that he wanted, right? Why did it have to be a blood covenant? And, and I think there are a couple of reasons and one would be this. We say, and I believe in justice, and I believe in scripture, that the penalty needs to fit the crime. What does sin do? It kills you. And nothing short of life will restore life. Nothing short of that. And I think the the depth of the provision is to remind us of the gravity of the failure. The soul that sins, it shall die. And it tells us in this section that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Even to the point in Old Testament law that if a man sheds another man's blood, there's only one payment for that that's just. It's not a turtle dove or a pigeon. It's the blood of another man. If one man sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. It's the, it's the idea of a penalty that fits the crime and justice that fits the infraction. And so sin brings death. The only way that sin then could be covered was by the shedding of blood. And it tells us in verse 15 that he's a mediator of the new covenant. Now look look at the end of this verse. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom And here we go again, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You need to see what that means. Do you know know what what the truth is here? Nobody, nobody's sin was removed by the first covenant. Nobody was set free. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that their external performance... And, the, and they could come to the temple and offer all the animals they wanted to offer, and it wouldn't free them from their sin. There's only one thing that would free them from their sin. Habakkuk said it this way, the just shall live by faith. It wasn't the blood of a bull or a goat. It was offering that with faith in a Messiah who would come. Why were they not in the presence of the Lord? Why were they in 
paradise before Jesus died on the cross because they had not been set free from their sin. It was not removed from them. But when he died on the cross, he paid for the sins of those that were under the first covenant. It was covered because they had faith in a coming Messiah. That's not really different than today. Praying the prayer won't save you. Praying the coming to church won't deliver you. One thing will, and that is faith. We don't look ahead. We look back now and by faith grab hold of that same provision and that same provision that freed them from the sins committed under the first covenant frees us from the sins committed under the second covenant and everything meets at the cross and everything revolves around the cross and all of eternity hell will have to bow before the cross. Never free, but now made free. And then this simple little truth, verse 16, it was a covenant, and it's necessary to prove the death of one who made it because the will is in force only when someone who has died because it's death that releases the provisions of the will. They would understand that. If you've ever had to deal with someone's estate, you would understand that. I have a friend talked to uh, this week. His son had died and having to take that death certificate around to prove it because there's certain things to be released that can't be released until that happens. The provision... <laughs> of joy and peace in the Holy Ghost was released when the guarantor of the covenant died. It's a solemn thought, isn't it? He doesn't just give that to you. It couldn't be yours until he died. He was willing to pay that price. He stands before God in our place. Verse 24, he appears for us in God's presence. He is our substitute. And sometimes we talk about it this way. And I, I had a discussion this week. It was a really good discussion. That Jesus is our advocate, our mediator. But let me tell you what a mediator means. If I were to have to go to court, I would want the best attorney available. Because he's going to mediate between me and the charges. And he's going to argue in my defense. He's not arguing in your defense. Because you don't have one. But when the accuser of the brethren brings your charges before the throne room of God himself... Jesus doesn't stand up and say, well, Sharon has done a lot of good work. Sharon Thomas has made a lot of pies. We should let her in. I'd let you in, Sharon, for your pies. They're heavenly. I would, come on in. As long as you bring your pies, come on in. Bringing, but they've done good deeds. They've tried really hard, and I think the good has outweighed the bad because it doesn't. It doesn't. He stands up and says, Judge, 
I already paid for that. That adultery, I died to forgive that. This isn't an award ceremony. This is him taking ownership of our failures. I paid for that. The abuse, the suffering, the pain, the murder, the lies, the deceit. You don't have a right to get in, but he stands up and says, Judge, I paid for that. Is there anybody in the house now? I paid for that. That's how he mediates for us. He bears the sins of the whole world. Now, I want to dispel a myth here just really quickly, if I could. And if you've said this, please keep your heads bowed and eyes closed and don't look around at anybody. But there's a verse here in this section that's been abused over and over again. And that's in about verse, I think it's verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once, the King James says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. This point is often missed. And I'll hear hear people say, you know, God's already appointed the time that you'll die. There's nothing you can do to change that. Do you know a lot of things we believe would be fixed if we just read the whole Bible? (laughs) He that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his lips from evil and his tongue from speaking guile. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the earth. Why would he give us promises of long life if there wasn't anything we could do about it? Some of you have lived in such a way that you've already lost several years of your life and that was not the will of God and he didn't appoint that. You're deciding if you're gonna live longer or shorter. And I know there are other things that happen. I'm not saying it's all in your hands. I'm just saying this verse doesn't mean you have an appointment with death and that's gonna happen when God says so, no matter what, nothing you can do can change it. That's biblical illiteracy. Here's what's true. It's appointed that you die once. (laughs) You don't get a retake. Yeah, that funeral didn't go so good. Could you resurrect me? I'd like to change a few things. I wasn't ready to do it on Thursday. I'd like to die on Monday. Could we extend that? Why does that matter? Just as people are destined to die once, and after that, <laughs> and after that to face the judgment. How many know that's true? Without a miracle of resurrection, you're going to die once. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. He doesn't have to do it again. He doesn't have to die again. He doesn't have to make that sacrifice again. Listen, our dying once is a testimony from God that when a human dies once, it's the end of the story. So when we stand at the crucifixion and we see Jesus hanging on the cross, he dies once, one time. That's all that was needed for the whole world. And if he died once, there is no sacrifice left for you to give, nothing more for you to surrender to find forgiveness. You can't earn 
converted. He already died for it once. Once. It's a complete covenant once and for all. Now, Jesus cleanses our conscience. Jesus consummated the covenant. It's, it's done. It's done. And Jesus, all that's said in this chapter leads us to this. And Jesus is coming back. <laughs> He's coming back again. The writer of Hebrews wants us to get this. He was sacrificed once, once and for all. It's eternally significant. There isn't anything else to add to it. It will never happen again. He sacrificed himself once. What does that mean? It means he'll never do it again. He's not coming back as a babe in Bethlehem. He's not coming back as the crucified Savior. He's not coming back limited by human flesh. He did that once. When he comes back, he's coming back as the conquering king of kings and lord of lords he did that once he's not doing it again he's coming back as the deliverer of all of mankind he will appear a second time <laughs> oh i know it just sounds like a fairy tale doesn't it jesus is going to return yeah we've been saying that for two thousand years when they say peace and safety at a time when you think not when we quit talking about it, keep your nose in the book and remember, he came once and did that. Been there, done that, not doing it again. There's a day coming where they'll, they'll never spit on him again. There's a day coming they'll never mock him again. There's a day coming that those big mouths on media who are saying all the things they want to say and trying to shut down any expression of the gospel, their voice and their mouth will be stopped because when he comes back, they'll have nothing to say. This won't be a time to have tea and crumpets. It'll be a time to settle the score. People talk about a come to Jesus meeting. I'm telling you, that is the ultimate come to Jesus meeting. When he comes back and everything is settled and stopped, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I've got good news for you, church. He's coming back. He's coming back. He came the first time. So he'd come back the second time. And the only prophecy we need to understand is he came and died and said, I am coming again. I will return. This same Jesus that you saw taking up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go. He's coming back on a white horse. He's coming coming back with a two-edged sword. He's coming back as the word of God. He's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. He's coming again. He died once. He rose once and he ever lives. And that day of, of righteousness is coming. Relax. Calm down. And he says... This is a little sneak into Revelation. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 
Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to digress into Revelation very far, just to say there's a little truth here that can be easily missed. The second advent, the second advent, when he touches down on the Mount of Olives and it cleaves east to west, he's not coming then for those who are waiting for him. He's coming then for those who are warring against him. So what is this a reference to? Church, lift up your head. Lift up your eyes, for our redemption draweth nigh. Jesus is coming soon. My hope is not in the Republican Party. My hope is not in the Democratic Party. My hope is not in a coronavirus stimulus bill. My hope is not in a recovery or a boom or politics. My hope is my eyes are tuned to the eastern sky. I'm looking for that day when he will appear to the clouds and those that wait for him actively look for him and are longing for him. He will return for and when he comes, it'll come because he cleanses our conscience. He consummated the covenant and we're just waiting for him to come back again. And if you believe that, stand your feet, lift your hands, magnify the name of Jesus. He's coming again. I said he's coming again. Let's wait and watch for his return. Hallelujah. So long I had searched for life's meaning Enslaved by the world and my greed The door of my prison was opened by love You know it's sick. Breathe. 
comes against you to taunt you over your past some people have said remind him of his future I think I've got a better one just remind him that Jesus paid it all once and for all he paid it all and I'm free amen